0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Justin Welsh to the show. Welcome, Justin. Jeremy, great to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Justin is the former CRO of Patient Pop, where he actually helped grow the revenues from zero to 50 million in recurring revenue. And he now advises and consults for uh, SMB SaaS companies. So, we're going to talk a little bit about some of his lessons learned and best practices he acquired in going from VP of Sales of One, as he described, all the way up to leading the entire organization. He also made a big move recently. So, I'm sure that'll factor in. He moved from LA to Nashville. And then I think it's impossible that you have not seen Justin on your LinkedIn feed, if you're on LinkedIn, because he has uh, built an insanely amazing network. And we'll probably talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, Before we dive into all of those topics, Justin, asking you the same question I always ask folks, which is what's your favorite sales book and maybe one of the tips that you got from that book?
1: Yeah, my favorite sales book is kind of a classic. And it's one that's, I think, been really relevant through the years, which is the sales acceleration formula by Mark Roberge. For me as a first time VP back in 2015, you know, I had to set up systems and processes for the very first time. I had to build, you know, interview scorecards and and process for that. I had to build part of the marketing because we didn't have a, a marketing person when I first joined. And Mark's book really lays out the basics and the fundamentals, the foundation. It's like building a house, building a sales organization. And, and that book to me is the foundation. And so I revisit it at least once a year. And I always take a nugget from it every time that I reread it to me, when I read something, I might comprehend, I don't know, 25% of it if I'm lucky the very first time. And so for me, I just keep revisiting, keep revisiting until some of the things that I get from the book are, are just commonplace for me. They're habits. And so Mark's book is one of those. And I'd rather read a really excellent book five times than read five different books in which I apply nothing. Uh, I can certainly talk about books endlessly, but we'll move on to
0: uh, just a a little bit of the story around patient pop. Tell me a little bit about when you joined and how big was the company? What was going on? Had they found product market fit? Just, yeah, set up the story for us.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I joined Patient Pop in January of 2015. PatientPop uh, came into existence, uh, I think, four months prior in September of 2014. And the co-founders, Luke Curvin and Travis Schneider, they're Canadian guys who had built a few smaller businesses before, but this was their first real foray into software. And so they built essentially an all-in-one platform for physicians to promote their practice. And this came out around uh, Luke's experience going through the OBGYN process with his wife who was pregnant. They had a really bad process, really bad experience. And so he wanted to build this holistic platform, which allows physicians to market their practice, communicate with their patients, streamline their front office, do sort of the hub spot for physicians, right? It's kind of all in one. And um, they went out and Luke and Travis and they hired their first sales guy, Max Kim Brown. He had worked for me at my previous business, a business called ZocDoc in New York, and Max was their first rep and they went out and they probably onboarded probably 40 physicians at the market price back then, which was like 4K per year. And um, they asked Max, uh, you know, hey, do you have any recommendations for who might be a great VP of sales? And Max said, hey, I had this manager at ZocDoc, Justin. And so they went out and they basically interviewed every leadership person at ZocDoc. And that was like 30 to 35 guys and gals that I worked with. And my name was a name that came up relatively consistently, which is, you know, super humbling. And really awesome. It means I left somewhat of a, you know, a mark on the previous business. And, you know, knowing that Max was there made the decision really easy for me because Max is not just a great sales professional, a really good person and a really good learner. Like he's, he's that purple squirrel for sales guy, you know, great salesperson, also a great leader, also super patient, like doesn't need a ton of support, super autonomous. So um, I joined uh, in January of 2015. It was just me and Max. I was living in New York at the time. Um, And I went out and, you know, brought on about 30 or 40 physicians myself in the next few months. And so I was noticing product market fit as well. As a question, did you leave
0: directly from ZocDoc to patient pop or did you have any sort of gap in between? I'm just wondering how tough of a decision was it? Because if you're already managing a team to sort of go to this three-month-old startup with one salesperson, that's quite the risk.
1: Yeah, I had been um, at ZocDoc for five years and then it was time for me to, to sort of leave ZocDoc. I had run my course there and had an awesome experience in 2014, I left with one of the guys who ran hospital sales there. And then another guy who you may know from like The Apprentice and he comes from LinkedIn or maybe Groupon. His name is Surya Yalamanchili, And the, the three of us um, went and we went to a business called Public Stuff. And it was a government business that essentially did back end 411 and front end mobile apps for folks in the community and counties. I was there for about a year as the director of sales. So no, I didn't leap directly from ZocDoc. But when Max came there, I was like, hey, this is my first executive opportunity. What better? fit than product in the healthcare space where I'd spent 16 years at a high velocity price point in sales cycle, just like ZocDoc. And I was like, if I'm going to nail my first time being an executive, this has got a lot of the good signs on it. So it made it a relatively easy jump for me. When you only have
0: one salesperson and one manager, you probably have no choice but to be a player coach. I assume
1: that's the case. And how did you balance you know, the selling aspect and the coaching aspect? Totally. I think the first thing for me is I made an assumption. I had never been an executive before. So everything that I was doing was hypothesis based, right? I made this assumption that if I was going to be a good executive, if I was going to lead a sales organization of 100 people some days, I better damn well know how to sell this product. I better just know the ins and outs, the language, the messaging, the pitch, all the things that you need to know know, to be quasi dangerous. And so when I first got there, I took the pitch they gave me and I just ripped it apart and I restitched it back together in in a framework that I use when I sell SMB SaaS and I kind of repeated it, I pitched in the mirror, I pitched to all the co-founders, I pitched to Max, to my wife, to everybody, until I felt really, really tight with the pitch. And then I went out and wanted to prove it to myself. So that's what I did, I actually left Max alone. Like Max super autonomous, and you may not get that in every one of your first hires, but you should when you're hiring your first salesperson at a startup. And so I knew that he was killing it in LA. I was in New York, and so I was running around just getting my feet wet, right? Trying to sell the product, and I, I did that effectively. As soon as I did that, I kind of stopped, right? I kind of put the brakes on and said, okay, how do I start investing more into max and how do I start finding more maxes? So for me, it was like a two months of almost player, not even player coach, like 75% player, 25% coach. And then it was just hard breaks. And I started investing and hiring more salespeople and trying to find that next max.
0: Sometimes people get into that motion, right? Especially, you know, managers who are put in that position and they never find their way out. Did somebody jar you out of the player mode?
1: Yeah, I think I came into the job knowing, like I said in the beginning, that I needed to be able to sell the product, but that ultimately downstream, what would make me an effective executive would not be being a good salesperson. Like being a great VP of sales or CRO, I think customer success leaders and marketing leaders can come in and do a great job because of the, a lot of the skills they bring in. But I wanted to learn how to sell the product. I just wanted to know that for myself. I had bigger aspirations in my role. And so I recognized that I could continue to go down this road where I'm selling this product to doctors and like really enjoying myself and never really put my VP of sales shoes on. And I didn't want that to happen. So as soon as I felt like I had enough traction, like I felt like I had a repeatable process and I felt like Max really needed to continue to be invested in and I needed to go find other folks to actually go ahead and spread this pitch and this, you know, story that we had created. I just took off my player shoes, put on my VP shoes and went out and started hiring. And that's, that's where I started learning a heck of a lot. That's where, you know, books like the one that we talked about in the very beginning, really came into play. And so it was, for me, it was really a hard stop.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned hiring more maxes. It's something I'd love to unpack, which is when you look to hire new salespeople, what do you look for? Are there must
1: haves? For me, the number one is you're coming into my startup and we don't have marketing slicks and we don't have a huge customer success team, and we don't have really well-defined processes yet. So I need creativity, I need autonomy, I need curiosity, I need people who can figure it out on their own, and I generally look for those things just during the interview process, of course, like everyone does, but it's not the questions I ask. I love to find the people that I wanna hire on the questions that they ask. And so for me, it was, did you come with two pages full of notes to ask me? When I give you an intentionally crappy answer, do you start peeling the onion back and going deeper and deeper? Do you nod your head, oh yeah, that sounds cool. Those are the folks who just want a job. I want people to understand what they're walking into and be really curious about it. I remember um, you know, one of the early uh, girls that I hired, Megan, I jumped on the phone with her and the first thing she said to me was she said, hey, before we get started, I have some questions for you. And I was like, cool, you're hired. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, like, there's just like, I just want motivated, curious people because you can teach those folks anything. Every guy and gal that I hired who had 20 years of sales experience and, you know, blah, blah, blah. They just flamed out because they weren't ready for that intense startup environment.
0: Uh, I, one thing else I, I did want to drill into was you mentioned the giving the uh, intentionally crappy answer. And the reason I bring that up is I've encountered that interview technique at least once that I knew. There were probably other times I didn't know. So I was sitting down, I was interviewing for, uh, was I think a CMO job or a CRO job. It's hard for me to remember at this point. It was probably 10 years ago. And all of a sudden, the person who was interviewing me just said something completely outlandish. It took me whatever it was, 10, 15, 20 seconds to figure out, okay, that he's he's doing this to me, right? Like he's checking to see if I'm going to just agree. And what he wanted to hire, right, was people who would stand up for their convictions and who wouldn't just accept BS. For you, is that a common technique? And and do you find
1: that's a good screening thing is like throw that that ridiculous thing out there? Yeah, there are two screening questions. So um, people ask like, what's the morale like? I was like, oh, it's really good. What does good mean? right? Like, what is your ENPS? Like, what what are the the biggest challenges that you you find in your culture? What are things that you think patient pop does differently than other companies don't do? Like, really dig in, ask questions. Because when you get in front of a physician prospect, and you say, you know, how's business? And they say, it's pretty good. What does that mean? Your schedules fill 90% of the time, 70% of the time, 40% of the time? Like, I want to understand those things. And I think the second thing that I, I do is I like to put people in precarious situations to see how they might react, right? Because in sales, sometimes, you say things and you're like, Ooh, whoops, shouldn't have said that back myself into a corner. Suddenly I'm in the, I'm in the weeds. How do I get out? And so oftentimes I'll say like, Hey, you know, you and I are going to go on a ride along and you've got three different ways we can spend our time together, A, B, and C. And I'll describe some scenarios. I don't really care what the scenarios are. You know, they'll say, Oh, I would do C. It doesn't really matter what answer they give me. I just say, Hey, how would you feel if I told you, I think that's the worst answer of the three. Do they you know, stammer, red face, sweating, can't work their way out? Or do they simply just say, hey, well, why do you feel that way? I'd love to understand that a little bit better. Can you walk me through why the other two decisions are better decisions than the one that I suggested? Just simple sort of objection handling, discovery questions, peeling the onion back to me. Those are meets minimum requirements. And most people I know in interviews don't have a way of figuring those things out. I forget who said this, but they basically said that, look, salespeople themselves should not
0: over invest in professional brand building on LinkedIn. They should just be selling that brand building is the job of people who are consultants, right? Trying to build a business, whatever it happens to be. I'd love to just get your philosophy on on that guidance, like go sell. You've got limited time. Don't like spend all your time on LinkedIn brand building. Do you know
1: Sarah Brazier over at Gong? Yep. Yep. of course you do. Because she's on LinkedIn building her brand, right? And when you think of software that might help shine the light on how people are pitching to your customers, you know, for me, I think a gong before I think a chorus. No offense, chorus. I'm sure it's a great tool, but she's not just building a brand for herself. She's building a brand on behalf of her business. And so they reap the benefit of her building her brand. I use her as an example on a lot of podcasts that I talk to because to me, there's like a mutual benefit there, right? Tell me that Gong is not benefiting from Sarah Brazier, Devin Reed, Chris Orlob, all the folks that are sort of over there, you know, building out their brand. They absolutely are. And so for me, what I always advocate is you build a personal brand, you don't build it on behalf of your company because when you get fired or when COVID hits and you go through a riff, or when the economy goes down, or when you transition from one job to another and suddenly you're in a different industry, the only thing that transitions with you is the brand that you've built. So now we've established it's a good thing to do this. So in just a few minutes that we have left, what are some of either your guiding principles or your best tips for people to get started with doing that? Yeah, for me, it's there's two things. Number one, before you do anything or say anything, you have to recognize that you have a landing page and your landing page is your profile, right? So. If you're gonna be talking about something that you're thinking about or you're actively doing or promoting, when people get to your profile, they are going to make a decision on how seriously to take you in about the first three seconds. So a couple things. First of all, build your profile out like a successful landing page. Start above the fold, right? Take a look at your banner image. Who are you, who do you help, and what do you help them do? Make it crystal clear. Don't make it a skyline in New York City. Next is I'm looking at your your picture. Do I get a professional vibe from it or is it guy in his car, you know, taking a selfie or is it me cropping my buddy out who's got a beer in his hand at a bar? Like if you can't invest time in your photograph or your headshot, then you likely don't invest your time very effectively elsewhere. As you move down the profile, I like to learn more in a granular fashion. How do you help people, right? Like, what is your process? What is some social proof that folks benefited from interacting with you? So I think of it like a funnel, right? The top of the funnel's wide. You start up there and you kind of work your way down until you work to that featured section, which is a CTA on LinkedIn now. And it's like, if you're selling something, whether you're selling on behalf of your company, which I don't advocate for, or you're selling something like a course, or you're selling a podcast, or you're just giving away a book for free, it doesn't matter. You know, feature it there in, in your featured section. That is sort of number one. And then number two is document people always ask me like how do you create content every day and just I just talk about what I'm doing like I make notes on my phone I save interesting things that I read if I discover a new problem or challenge that I solve I write about it if I discover a new problem or challenge that I don't solve I also write about that as well so if you really step back and you think about your life you solve problems you solve challenges you fail at things you do something new and interesting every day there's never a day that goes by that doesn't happen so talk about that makes it easy Do you stay
0: in any lane? Do you have any sort of guiding principles? As I said, for me, like my lane is it's actionable, data driven, how to for sales leaders with source attribution, because I'm usually like we do generate some of our own data, but very often I'm, you know, I'm quoting you or I'm quoting the gong studies or what have you, right? Like I'm finding data and surveys that are out there that help. So I'm just wondering if you have any guidelines. And part of the reason I asked that is because people will sometimes get frustrated on LinkedIn
1: when people go from the professional side over to the personal side. The way that I think about it is I used to think about it niching down, but I'm starting to play around with the idea that I don't want to be known for my experience. I want to be known for me. I believe that I am the brand and not my experience building patient pop, not my experience doing well on LinkedIn. I want people to like to follow me. So, what I mean by that is if next week I want to talk, start talking about something different, I want that tribe of followers to come along and say, "We want to follow you because we like you as a person, as a as a brand," right? Like because to me, if you really have a good following that's following you, there isn't competition right? Like you talk about sales. I used to talk about sales. Colin Cadmus talks about sales. KD talks about sales. All talks about sales. Everybody talks about sales, right? Like what makes us different is who's got the best tip that day. So for me, it's like, I don't want to compete with those guys. I don't want to compete with anyone. I want to compete with myself. And so I'm starting to think about building me as a brand versus sales. I'm tinkering with that and I'm enjoying the results so far.
0: Well, as you're starting out on your thing and, you know, obviously trying to attract people who need help, particularly SMB SaaS companies who have high velocity sales motions, what's the best way for those people to
1: find you these days? Sure. Um, They can find me on LinkedIn. My last name is Welsh, W-E-L-S-H. They can also go to my website, which is theofficialjustin.com, theofficialjustin.com. And they can email me at justinwelsh at hey.com, H-E-Y.com. Thank you, Justin. And congrats on the move and congrats on the new business. Jeremy, thanks so much, man. It's been a blast and uh, really appreciate having a conversation with you and good to get to know you a little bit.
0: Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.